Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. We are at the weekend before the 2021 NFL Draft is coming up soon. That means that the RSP Post Draft is coming soon. And if you're new to the RSP or you've heard about it but never bought it, this is the great gateway to get into the RSP land because the Post Draft publication gives you re-rankings of players based on where they land with the you know specific NFL teams. I give you um, depth chart analysis of that shows you kind of how these players may f- project to fit in on their depth chart over the first year of the season and give you an idea of what I think of the players on those depth charts. You also get a re-ranking of the players in a cheat sheet format that factors in where I rank them, the ADP, and I create my own ADP in terms of tracking a variety of fantasy drafts, and then the sweet spot of where you can get that player. Because I know that a lot of my um, picks or or rankings of certain players, because my process is so different, that they're going to be outliers in some degree to where a lot of people are planning to pick those options. So I want you to be able to maximize the value of players like Patrick Mahomes and Nick Chubb and Cooper Cup and, you know, A.J. Brown and Justin Jefferson or Marshawn Lynch or anybody, you know, Matt Forte, players over the years that I've, I've been higher on than other people, you know. So we're going to talk a little bit about one of those players, and that's Trey Sermon. And kind of answer the mailbag here. And I'm so we're going to start first with Sermon because I got a question from a guy named Paul, who I, I believe is a football guy subscriber, probably seen around that I've had Sermon rated high because every podcast um, that I've been could possibly be on has asked me, What do you like about Trey Sermon? Now, Paul asked the best question among all of them, which is, why do you differ among other analysts? Or why do you think you may differ from other analysts? So I gave him a list of possibilities that I'm going to go through. Number one, I could be wrong. You know, I think that's the first thing that pretty much every analyst who's been doing this for a while would probably tell you if they're any good. Is that, yeah, I could be wrong about the player. Maybe I overestimate you know, his vision and his quickness and his footwork and the power and balance that I see to his game and underestimate that he doesn't have top, great top-end speed and that maybe he had unbelievable blocking at Ohio State and Oklahoma. And maybe he's just not quite as good as I think he could be. That's the first possibility. But, you know, beyond that, because, again, that's always kind of the first assumption. The second things, one is I I don't care about draft capital. And draft capital, for those of you who may not understand that term or don't, you know, aren't as into it as, as others, is just where that player is going to get picked and how highly they're picked, which... I believe, from what I've seen, many analysts who study the draft 
they consider draft capital when forming rankings. They're forming rankings where they in, they're raising or lowering guys based on where they might get drafted because their job is about doing mock drafts and and following where the NFL, how the NFL feels about these players. So to them, the idea of ranking a player well above or well below his draft capital is not in line with the design of their methodology. Okay, I don't care about the draft that way. I don't follow, um, you know, I don't do mock drafts. I don't ever care to do mock drafts, you know, unless I just would have to in case my business crumbles and somehow I need to get a job writing about the draft where I'm asked to do mock drafts. Otherwise, it would be the last thing I would want to do. I just think they're a waste of time um, for me because I like to study the talent. You know, I don't care about what the NFL, you know, because, again, the first round of the draft um, is, much, is as much an exercise of risk management as it is about talent. Does the player have the, the qualities where the optics of picking that player look good as much as whether he's talented or not? That's how, why I even got into all this, as I've told the Brian Westbrook story a million times in the past two weeks. Um, so if you haven't heard it, you can listen to any one of my podcasts on my site, and I'm sure it's on there. Um, but it is one of those things where, because I do a post-draft, I don't have to allow let a, where a player's potential draft spot influence my pre-draft rankings. It gives you an unfiltered take as to what, how I see that player's talent. And I think that's valuable. I think that's way more valuable than clouding your analysis with, well, the NFL seems to like this guy as a potential first-round value. And then, you know, and then otherwise I'm going into pretend land of, of pretending that I might like this player or, or then I have to go back and have revisionist history later and say, well, I really didn't like him all that much, but I had him ranked really high because he was going to be picked in the first round. So there's that. Another reason is I've been doing this for 16 years, you know, and the experience level doesn't always mean a ton, but considering that many others have been doing this for three to five years, you know, they're still going through a growth phase of doing it. Some of, you know, many of these analysts are very good at what they do. Um, but those that may not pay attention to draft capital as much um, and are doing it, you know, because there's guys who are doing it as long as I have or longer who, who do pay attention to draft capital. But those who have been doing it shorter than us who don't pay attention to draft capital like me, I don't pay attention to it, you know, that experience may matter a little bit more. They may be really talented at what they do. And I have respect for a lot of guys who are just getting started in this. Um but maybe they, I don't know their process. And I know that for 16 years I've been tweaking my process where there are a lot of people I know who've been doing this for several years and don't do a lot to change or work on their process. Their process remains the same in many respects. So, or the changes they make aren't substantial. You know, it's just what it is. Um, you know, so for me, 
you know, as I've, you know, over the years, when I look at a guy like Sermon, some of the things that have changed for me is that I have devalued the, the, the weight of long speed in my evaluation. It can make a difference between uh, two players who I think are close to, you know, who are fairly equal in terms of skill sets, but I don't want to make it something that elevates a player well ahead of skilled options. You know, for me, a good example is I wouldn't want to have, say, Chris Henry, the Titans' first-round pick, who was drafted based on his speed but had no discernible NFL-level skills as a running back vaulted over players who actually have starter-level skills for the NFL they are going to make a difference play in and play out. And there are times that teams have made mistakes like that. So for me, I've made sure that the way that I score players doesn't allow for a single athletic component for a player who's devoid of skills and concepts to get vaulted way ahead of players who have the skills and concepts and the baseline speed and athletic ability to play in the NFL. And I think that's where people can tend to get it wrong when they're first doing this. And I gave a very, you know, very extreme example of that. But I think there are areas or or players that sometimes people overemphasize a, a player's abilities because, A, they may not understand the nuance of the running back position as well as they should. You know, so... You know, again, I don't see their process. I only know mine. Um, the other is metrics. You know, a lot of people will look at metrics and and I think they use them in a clumsy fashion with running backs. And the greatest example of that is Dalvin Cook. You know, or at least in recent years, Dalvin Cook didn't have strong agility scores, which is those scores probably come from you know three cone drill and 20 shuttle because those are the stop start movements or exercises that they run with these timed events where you have to drop your weight and make a sudden stop and you have to make the you know the you have to use the methodology of a jump cut or a hard lateral cut for these types of movements and Dalvin Cook never ran that way. He's As a running back, he doesn't make those types of cuts. He uses what I often call, you know, ter- use the term curvilinear movement. He's very good at that. But the thing is, is when you look at Dalvin Cook's running style, it doesn't match what the combine uses to measure running back athletic ability. You know, so... A guy like Cook uses his athletic ability or maximizes it by minimizing the types of moves that would force him to do things that he doesn't do well. And as a result, he he makes the most of his athletic skills due to his style. And I think a lot of people who missed on Dalvin Cook missed on that because they tried to apply the combine to the player 
um, or force the player into the combine metrics as opposed to looking at the player's style and fitting, you know, what picking what fits with that player and what doesn't and being able to discern what's going to matter or have value compared to things that may not. And with Dalvin Cook, you know, the three-cone drill and the 20 shuttle didn't matter as much to me. I saw he had acceleration to get past linebackers and safeties. You could see that he could change direction well and very fast. And with curvy linear movement, it's actually one of the more optimal ways to avoid defenders because you are maintaining a high rate of speed. Your gait doesn't slow down as much when you are coming to, you know, when you're bending around an obstacle or a pursuit as opposed to having to come to a full stop and then cut. So Cook is that exceptional case that people kind of missed. But players with that curvy linear movement tend to be that. So when I look at a player like Trey Sermon, he has that curvy linear movement to his game. He uses it frequently. So how, you know, how important really is his three-cone drill and shuttle? Is it just slightly above average? You know, or is it good? Yeah, maybe. It's good enough from what I've seen with the metrics that he has. That it's good enough for a guy who even does make hard cuts. But the fact that he also uses curvy linear movement in his arsenal as much as he does, you can understand, you can look at his metrics and understand that this is a guy who kind of is a little bit of a cheat code in his style, like Dalvin Cook, where that doesn't matter as much. Though what I'd say is the added bonus with Sermon is that unlike Dalvin Cook, he can make those cuts and can do so with quickness. And and the times show that. But this is someone who his style isn't something that a lot of people really understand. The people that I know who understand it like Trey Sermon. And I'm going to tell you two people I know who understand it, who I trust, as people who watch the running back position. Jay Moyer, he understands it. He may not have him as ranked as highly, but he's doing, a, I believe his publication is ranked with a mix of, you know, some analytics guys who may not understand that as well. And I'm not down, you know, grading the analytics, the quality of the analytics people on their staff. I just don't know their experience level and know why I haven't looked at their book yet, though I'm looking forward to checking it out. Um, pretty soon. And then, you know, my buddy Eric Stoner, who doesn't analyze anything anymore, um, but, you know, I know Eric, and it was funny, he emailed me recently and and was telling me about that he liked what he saw from Trey Sermon. And what he liked was one of the things that he and I have talked about a lot over the years, which is the independent movement of the upper and lower body. Really good running backs like Marshawn Lynch all the way down to a guy like Darren Sproles who played years in the league and had some high, great years of production even though he was never really the guy because he was so small. Both those guys ran similarly. They had that ability to independently move their upper and lower bodies in ways that helped them avoid defenders. And Trey Sermon has that to his game too. So there's some exceptional things about Trey Sermon that I think some people just miss out on. Um, and some of it is because the metrics 
application can be maybe a little awkward or clumsy for a player like that. And it's a it takes some craft and some experience and to, to kind of under and look at that. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Another part is that analysts often weigh production, you know, when it comes to their ranking of a player and for fantasy football, for them, production matters because they find, you know, even if it's not a great correlation to the talent of the player, it's a safe, it's kind of a very conventional, safe, don't color outside the lines approach to, you know, picking players. You know, you're they're eliminating all the, the potential outliers who could be good out of this process. But at the same time, they're also keeping it safe enough so that if you're, you know, new to fantasy football or don't have a lot of time to do your own analysis to look into players, you can know that someone's trying to keep it as safe as possible for you. So if a player doesn't have great production, you know, or consistent production every, you know, every week or each season, and Trey Sermon didn't because he split time with some excellent Oklahoma backs and he split time early at, o at Ohio State, then, you know, he's not going to rank as highly. So to me, I think pro the production ranking is the way people use production that's they put too much value on it, especially at the running back position because we've seen players who have, um, we've seen too many outliers in that in that area, if you ask me. But again, if you're going to play it ultra safe, then, then that's how you do it. You use production um, as a metric to say, all right, well, he didn't have as high of a production share. I don't use that at all. Don't care about it. Because again, I'm looking at talent and production isn't an indicator of talent. It tells you it tells you about how well he produced, which could have a lot to do with the surrounding talent, with the scheme that he's in, that may not match what the NFL does, with his athletic ability. But it again, that all those things can raise the value of, you know, Athletic ability, surrounding talents, impact, scheme, and do it to the detriment of your ability to properly weigh the, the player's technical ability, conceptual ability, and how he uses that athletic ability in terms of how it can um, work to the NFL. A good example is Tevin Coleman. Tevin Coleman was a metrics wet dream I think in many regards um, in terms of the way that he you know he had strong production he played against you know Big Ten talent he was someone with excellent speed and they looked at the fact that he played in an outside zone system and you put all that together and you're like this is going to be an excellent running back but here's the thing Tevin Coleman didn't run the outside zone scheme to the standard of the NFL. And that's something that I pointed out early in my, you know, early pre-draft, you know, about Coleman that a lot of people just didn't understand. You know, they're like, well, how could you, how could you say he's not a good outside zone runner? That's what he ran at IU. Well, 
you know, just because you took math doesn't mean you're good at math. You know, just because you ran outside zone doesn't mean that you ran it to the level that you need to run it for the NFL. And Coleman didn't. It took him a while. The fact the Falcons had to use a gap scheme early in their career to, you know, give him selected gap runs to get him on the field tells you a lot about where Coleman was at. And, you know, so Coleman got pumped up because a lot of his, you know, when you look at his production, a lot of his production came on a small number of runs against top teams. Like the Ohio State game was a great example. I think he had like 178 yards in that game. And three of those runs constituted about 85 to 90% of what he gained that day. And he ran the ball over 20 times. So that's not consistency. You know, you might say he consistently gives you big plays, and for uh, he can he has certainly panned out to be a big play back in the NFL, but he never put the small plays together enough to be an elite back or even a consistently strong number two running back from a top twenty-four ranking perspective. He was always at the lower end of the top twenty-four when he made it. When he, when he produced at that level because he was a part-time player. Part, you know, full-time players get the hard yards. He couldn't get the hard yards. And he's had difficulty doing that over the course of his career. So, you know, production, you know, production factors to me, while they can eliminate, you know, the outliers who may be, too risky to pick if you want to color in the lines. If you've gotten to a point of your analysis where you're more advanced and want to advance past that, um, or you can have more time to be able to play with a little bit more, then you're going to want to de-emphasize the importance of production. Another thing that analysts do when you start looking at a player like Trey Sermon is that they often want quantity over quality when they're looking at receiving. You know, to them, if the player doesn't have at least 20 receptions, then therefore he's not a good receiver or he's not safe enough, again, because they don't know whether teams are going to use him in that capacity. You know, this was the same view that people had of Melvin Gordon, Leonard Fournette, Nick Chubb. Now, are those guys all high-end receiving backs? No, though Gordon's had some pretty good receiving seasons and Chubb's starting to see more receptions and Fournette's had some year years or stretches of seasons where he's been able to earn a higher number of receptions. But it hasn't stopped them from being good starter-caliber players in the NFL. And that's what concerns people is, oh, if he, you know... If he doesn't check this box, he you know it reduces his chances of becoming a good NFL back. There's you know what you want to do. I think is when you see a player who has excellent two down skills, and they show that they can catch the ball, that should be good enough, if you ask me, because all those players I just mentioned all showed they could catch the ball and do it in on some difficult targets. It's just that they didn't have a lot of those targets. But to me, once a player shows good hands technique, good tracking technique, 
and they can do it with concentration against contact and do it against tight coverage and show some ability to run routes. If that's three to five plays, and that's and he's and they made those plays, and they're not constantly dropping balls that you know when they do have those opportunities, then if that's only 10 to 15 looks out of a three or four year career in the college level, that's enough for me. That's enough for me because it's panned out that those oftentimes those guys have to split time with someone else. And it's not because they weren't good enough. It's because of the way that the game's changed. You're seeing teams use more committee looks. You're seeing college teams understand that if they want to be competitive, that they have to recruit and play their top recruits, their top talent from the beginning. They have to give these guys experience. And giving them experience helps them when they become the lead back early on, you know, later on in their career. And then at the same time, it also keeps them interested and motivated to stay at your program when they could have gone somewhere else and been the man, you know? So when you look at the Georgias and the Miamis and the Oklahomas and, you know, you know, teams like that, the Alabamas of the world, they mix and match their backs. They use multiple backs because they know that they, these teams have reputations for having strong running back talent, but they know that they that the guys who that they get can, they can keep them by getting them involved, and that's important. So when a guy like Sermon split time with some good backs at Oklahoma, it's not because he wasn't good enough to be the main guy. It was because they kept. They kept recruiting really strong talent. And he went to Ohio State, not because he lost his job. It's because there was an opportunity at Ohio State for him to be a high-end contributor for a team that was frankly better than Oklahoma. And these days, when you look at the college football landscape, players understand now that they are commodities in a way that they can use that to their advantage sometimes if they're good enough. They know they're good enough to be drafted. They may switch to a team that gives them an opportunity to have higher level of exposure than what they had. And I think that that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because if college teams are, and I'm not saying that they all do this, but there's a, there's a tendency that college teams or college, you know, colleges that have top teams are more likely to steer players away from majors that they may be academically qualified for, but, you know, they're discouraged from, you know, doing because it may interfere with, you know, their ability to be, you know, the best football players they could be. At least that's what teams may fear. You know, I've seen, you know, we've seen this in the past. So you look at that, you see just kind of, just the whole nature of college football. I mean, I'm not going to get too far into it. I'll just say that, you know, the NFL, we know what it is. They kind of come out and say what kind of a cesspool they are. College football still uses the academic angle to try and be hypocritical about it. But I think they're an even bigger cesspool. And a lot of it's because there's a lot more public pressure from alumni and business people to have who are influential on academic leaders 
for them to turn their head and look the other way on things or to take risks or to be sleazier than what I think we see in the NFL. At least the NFL's up front with its sleaze. I'll just put it that way. When it comes to, you know, at, you know, when it comes to like other things, like I guess the last point I would make with Trey Sermon is that, you know, when studying players in the public, um, I would just have to say I probably have the most comprehensive process for the four players I study. That's why I only study four players because I want to be really in-depth with it. And, you know, that's... I'm not trying to brag. It's just the truth. I mean, people look at my publication. They see what I put into it and they're they're surprised when they're ever they're new. Even if they've heard really good things about it, they're shocked. Because my process is that in depth. And because I have that level of process, I'm, it's very likely that I'm always going to have different conclusions, conclusions that go against the grain, whether it's Dalvin Cook being better than what the analytics think, or Nick Chubb being as good or maybe better than Saquon Barkley, or Marshawn Lynch being as good or better than Adrian Peterson, or... Le'Veon Bell being better than people make him out to be and that he's not just some slug or that Isaiah Crowell who went undrafted being my number one back now did he turn out to be the best back of his class no but he certainly was in the neighborhood in terms of consistency before he got hurt um he was pretty good you know maybe fantasy players didn't feel that way but he certainly showed the talent to play in the NFL and at a level compared to the rest of his classmates, that he's pretty good. Matt Forte higher than most. You know, these are the types of things that I've, you know, these are just a few of the types of outliers that I've had. So, you know, why do I differ on Trey Sermon among other analysts? I think that's enough reasons right there for you to, you know, to kind of get a feel for that and understand where I'm coming from. And none of that. You know, few of that had to do with the film stuff that I've talked about in every other podcast. So who would I take number two overall with the New York Jets? That's a question that somebody on Twitter asked, wants to know. Well, it wouldn't be Zach Wilson. We know that. Um, and I don't think it would be a quarterback. I wouldn't have traded up, to be honest. Um, I probably would have let the best offensive lineman fall to me. But now that I'm at that number two spot, you know, what I might try to do if I was had the chance to replace the current Jets brass right now at this late of a juncture is to see if some teams would be willing to trade up to get a quarterback after saying that I decided that I don't want one. And if that happens, maybe I could trade back a few spots and get Penny Sewell, the, the tackle. You know, because really I'd like to solidify my edge players on the, on the line of scrimmage. I like to build inside out, but I can probably get a center um, or, you know, some guards after round one. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that, uh, you know, if I were to do, you know, to pick a player, I think getting a tackle right now would be great. And get that infrastructure solidified so that whether I – you know, trade for a quarterback, and there's some quarterbacks that I could probably trade for. Um, 
now that Sam Darnold isn't in the picture and let them, you know, be, you know, veteran quarterbacks and let them work with, you know, some of these youngsters at wide receiver um, so that these guys can be ready once I do get, uh, you know, a quarterback in the draft. So, I, you know, to me, I would probably go with Sewell, number two overall, um, and then maybe take a shot on a quarterback in the, you know, mid to late rounds. But, you know, really it's not going to be the priority this year at this at this stage. You know, now if I, if I felt like, you know, I had that Joe Douglas's job, but the owner was like, you have to pick a quarterback. Well, if that were the case, you know, I'm probably looking at, you know, Trey Lance or, or Justin Fields um, at this at this point. You know, those would be the two guys that I would take just because their ability to run and play physical. Um, I think they could survive a season, but I would probably still trade back, see if I can get one of those guys a little bit later. Um, you know, but... And see if I can pick up a little bit more draft capital as a result. But just training up to get Zach Wilson to me is not the not an optimal decision. Um, who would I get at number three for you know San Francisco? First, I want to say I, I think I would be um, I, I I would be comfortable with Mac Jones at number three. I know a lot of my peers aren't. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of my peers and. I'm sure we're going to have these conversations, you know, on draft night. But a lot of them are just really stuck on the athletic ability of a player. For me, the difficult part about evaluating the top quarterbacks is discerning how important these traits are, these physical traits are, versus the conceptual skills and techniques of the position. And from when I observe conversations about Justin Fields or Mac Jones or Trey Lance even, you know, and they're happening everywhere, is that people are more likely to presume that the top prospect with great athletic ability will reach or exceed the conceptual heights of the less athletic player they're comparing that athlete to. You know, one school of thought believes that a talent like Justin Fields won't have to make massive improvements with the speed of processing coverage because with his big arm and swift feet, it's just going to allow him to create. Then there's another school of thought that believes that a talent like Mac Jones, with a processor that he has, how fast he can process information, maneuver the pocket, and place the ball, that his game management and throwing talent are going to be good enough to reduce the number of situations where defenses will try to pin him into a corner and make him athlete his way out. Well, if you ask me, both could be correct. Both could happen. You have to understand that with a guy like Fields, yes, he could easily use his athletic ability to outrun the structure of a defensive scheme that's designed to try and stop him and make him make a big play and he's able to do it because he's so athletic and he's got such a big arm that he can buy time, break the defense down and render the 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 play basically moot. 
But at the same time, Mac Jones can be good enough that he can keep a team on schedule that the defense is forced to play on its heels and never be able to stop or use a scheme or a play in a way that stops Fields or forces him into those situations where he has to be a bigger athlete than he is. Both can be true. You know, we've seen it before. And that's something that I think sometimes we forget. The problem is that we've been trained to think that one answer has to be better than the other. You know, for me, athletic ability and arm strength are baseline values for the NFL. You have to have a certain amount of speed, quickness, arm strength. But these are things that can vary by the system that the quarterback is going to. The whole idea that one size fits all is the way that we should look at this, either or, one or the other, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in life. It doesn't work in politics. It doesn't work when evaluating football talent. So once you've established the baseline value you know, of what that is, of what's important in terms of arm strength and athletic ability, then the analysis has to become more nuanced. Or you just wind up erring on, on, you know, really picks that become simplistic and wind up having huge blind spots with them. As I've said and written about, you can find this at the RSP. Look at look up Justin Fields in the rookie scouting portfolio site, mattwaldmanrsp.com. You're going to find my analysis is that Justin Fields isn't dumb by any pro, any stretch of the imagination, but his processing can be slow at certain points. Certain types of plays that are thrown at him slow his processing down. This has nothing to do with intelligence or not as much to do with intelligence as people make it out to be. I mean, after all, Alex Smith is, was one of the smartest quarterbacks in recent history, and he also was quite mobile. He had a slow processor with key plays that often made the difference between winning and losing games. Fields has some similar processing woes in those key types of plays. And you can read a nuanced take about that at the RSP site. Now, if you want to learn a little bit more about intuitive, the intu- intuition and how that factors into processing and decision-making with quarterback play, you can also read that at my site too. Um, and you can see and read, it's an article called Pros- Quarterback um, Decision-Making is Intuitive. And it has Patrick Mahomes' picture on the, you know, to begin the, the uh, article. Mac Jones has a quicker processor than Justin Fields. His placement with difficult throws from the pocket also shows a higher level of skill than what Fields currently displays. Personally, I believe that what Jones displays translates to what he'll have to do in the NFL right now. And if he lands in San Francisco, I think he'll have the caliber of line and system around him and talent that he won't consistently lose because he lacks athletic ability that we'd see from Trey Lance, Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, or Justin Fields. Okay, I think that his processing and placement and his ability to work with play designs is good enough that he'll avoid enough situations where he won't have to out-athlete 
defenses on a consistent basis and those five to seven plays a game that a defense can often try to pin a player. He may his ability to stay on schedule and make the types of throws he makes may reduce the number of plays that defenses have a chance to try and do that. Well, at the same time, I think Justin Fields has the speed and the agility and arm strength to to make up for some of those five to seven plays per game where his processing speed might lag. He might also be able to avoid some of those plays because of the fact that his athletic ability is good enough. Um, and when those plays come up, he might be able to outlast the defense and break the play down. If he, you know, so just because he lacks superior processing speed compared to Jones doesn't necessarily mean that that's bad either. I, the, to be honest, I think both answers are right in this case, Fields or Jones. They're essentially tied in terms of how I evaluate the position on the field. They just play the game differently. And one way isn't necessarily better than the other when expressed optimally. They both have the, the baseline arm strength. They both have the baseline processing skill. They both have the baseline athletic ability. Fields has more of the athletic expression. Jones has more of the technical and conceptual expression. But you could see how this would play out well in San Francisco, depending on the preference of the team. The interesting thing that I see in discussions about this one or the other when it comes to quarterback is the notion that Fields is getting disrespected because the NFL likes Jones. And I can understand why that's you know, hard not to conflate because a lot of the media-driven NFL leaked items on Fields makes it feel that way while other teams are you know, holding up Jones. And he has fallen victim to some of the racist tropes and behaviors to downgrade his value. That's unfair. You know, talking about his leadership, rumors about his leadership, um, bringing up his epilepsy, which hasn't been a major problem throughout his career. Um, you know, the, 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 pro, the slow processor and how people see processing, even though that should be more nuanced and people take the the, lat, the simplistic version of processing equate it one-to-one -one with intelligence, and that's not the case. you know. But because people see all of this, and we've seen all these past um, ways that the NFL leaks information and, and agents leak information, and people talk about these players in the media, and a lot of it does have an undercurrent of racism to it. Even so... None of this has anything to do with Mac Jones. Mac Jones didn't create these issues. Even if Mac Jones's agent decided to leak this stuff, I doubt Jones A knew about it. B, it's his, you know, it's somebody else doing that, and that's wrong. But Jones is just basically what, you know, Jones is basically doing, just trying to do his job to be the best quarterback he can be. And it's he's competing with himself. Just all the quarterbacks should be competing with themselves to be the best that they can be, not with the other person. But I think because many people pit one player against the other when ranking as a part of their process, I don't. I don't. I'm just looking at what the player can do, and I give a score. I'm not going. Well, I should have this guy ranked above this guy or below this guy. That's not how I do it. But some people do that and inject some problematic methods into their process. 
So I think both players can fit into San Francisco. Personally, I'd prefer Jones if I think of the construction of my team needs. Um, and I'm if, if I think that my team is good enough that a quarterback who's going to be consistent conceptually and technically is going to keep my team on schedule and vault them upward right now, I'd take a little bit less of the upside that Fields offers for some of the safety that Jones offers with his processing and placement of the football. So those are my thoughts on the matter. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can find it you know, in pretty much every format that you listen to podcasts on. You can find the RSP at mattwaldmanrsp.com or just simply mattwaldman.com if you just want to go directly there to purchase it. And uh, listen, hope you enjoy your draft day experience. May your team get the players you wanted. And if they don't, hopefully they pick the players that, are, that you actually needed. Have a good week.